0: To the book of Esther. If you don't know how to get to Esther, a simple way would be to turn probably your Bible into the very middle, and you'll probably land in the book of Psalms and just head back two books to your left, and you'll find the 10 chapter short story of Esther. And we trust over the coming 10 weeks, we'll be able to glean what we must from this wonderful book, taking as we planned and have lined out at least just one chapter at a time. This, of course, is a book that many Christians know, I do think, at a Sunday school level. Uh, There's a conclusion to the book that often isn't told at a Sunday school level, with a battle and a feast along the way. But what we're going to begin with tonight is all 22 verses of chapter 1, which is a relatively sizable portion to read in the evening service, but we'll do it nonetheless, and then I'll pray for a time, and we will begin our study this evening so, listen now as God speaks to you through his perfect word. Now, in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus, who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces, in those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. The army of Persia, and Media, and the nobles, and governors of the provinces were before him, while he showed the riches of his royal glory, and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. When these days were completed, the king gave all the people, present in Susa the citadel, both great and small, a feast, lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. And there were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillows. And also couches of gold and silver and mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble and mother of pearl and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds. And the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. And drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion. For the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ashuerus. And on the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mehuman, Bistha, Harbona, Bigtha, Abagtha, Zathar, and Carcass, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus, to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty. For she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. And at this the king became enraged. His anger burned within him. Then the king said to the wise men who knew the times, for this was the king's procedure towards all who were versed in the law and judgment, the men next to him being, Parshena, Shethar, Edmatha, Tarshus, Meres, Marsena, and Maimukon, the seven princes of Persia and Media, who saw the king's face and sat first in the kingdom. According to the law, what is to be done to Queen Vashti? Because she has not performed the command of King Ahasuerus delivered by the eunuchs. Then Memucan, in the presence of the king and the officials, said, Not only against the king has Queen Vashti done what is wrong, but also against all the officials and all the peoples who are in the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's behavior will be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt, since they will say, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. This very day, the noble women of Persia and Media who have heard the queen's behavior will say the same to all the king's officials, and there will be contempt and wrath and plenty. If it please the king, let a royal order go out from him, and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes so that it may not be repealed, that Vashti is never again to come before King Ahasuerus, and let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. So when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all of his kingdom, for it is vast, all women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. This advice pleased the king and the princes. And the king did as Memukan proposed. And he sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province, in its own script, and to every people in its own language, that every man be master of his own household and speak according to the language." of his people. Thus far the reading of God's word, let's pray once again. Our Father, we do pray this evening that you would disclose unto us that which is hidden, that which was hidden but has now been revealed in Jesus Christ, who is the mystery revealed once and for all to every generation, your Savior for sinners such as us. Encourage us in the midst of our hardship when we think that you are not near Help us to listen, even this evening, if we think that you are silent, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Martin Luther, that great German reformer, he had what might be kindly called a complicated relationship with the book of Esther. Early in his career, he was actually quite favorable to this little short story. Uh, Particularly, he found reasons for exemplary virtue and particular reasons for imitation in Esther and Mordecai. But by the end of his career, as context and culture of his time changed and certainly his own studies evolved as well, he said that Esther is less worthy of being held canonical than any other book in the Old Testament. And children, what that means is, if you were to ask Brother Martin, if you could take one book out of the Old Testament, he would go yank Esther out as fast as his fingers could possibly move. And some of you might know know why Luther, along with other Christians throughout the ages, have struggled with this 10-chapter book of Esther. God's name is never mentioned in any portion of the ensuing passages. You might also know that God's word in the New Testament never directly quotes from Esther. They might also know that there's no even nod or perhaps even allusion to the reality of God's hidden providence that is so clearly guiding this story from start to finish. Therefore, some of you might know why this book is full of such beauty and splendor, because many of you will go through life and it feels like God isn't there. Many of you will go through seasons of difficulty and suffering, and it will seem altogether certain that God is silent towards you, perhaps even students, the devil, tempting you to think that God has forgotten about you. But as many people have said regarding this book of Esther, that the presence of absence doesn't mean the absence of presence. That God is there controlling everything from the very beginning to the very end according to His good decrees and His eternal providence to bring about His purpose and His promise in His Son, Jesus Christ. And so it's a book that's meant to encourage people that are oppressed and it seems like God is far. It's meant to exhort people to take calm comfort in God's tender providence when you don't know exactly what He is doing It's a book that's full of God's providence, His protection, His power, His provision, as we're going to see along the way, Lord willing, in coming weeks. It's full of all of these, frankly, comedic, redemptive reversals as God reveals His power, some of which we're going to see along the way today. But when it comes to Esther chapter 1, the simple point that you want to... Right, perhaps, on the side of your Bible, certainly the simple theme for our study this evening is reasons why a new queen will rise. That's what chapter 1 is telling us. Why a new queen is about to rise. And the very first words of verse 1 in chapter 1 have this kind of formulaic approach in the original language which we could translate as, now this is what happened. So let's turn to verse 1 and see what exactly happened, beginning with the king's wealth. Now in the days of King Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus, who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces. Now, this was a man that reigned the Persian Empire, ruled in the Persian Empire from 486 B.C. to 465 B.C. His father was the legendary King Darius. He's known in Greek as King Xerxes I. And kids, if you wanted to have an idea of how vast this man's power was, you might need a little geography lesson. From India to Ethiopia, over 127 provinces, his kingdom stretched. Now, students, I don't know if we pulled out a world map today, if you could quickly say, well, here's India and here's Ethiopia. But even if you couldn't, you need to know it's something akin to the known world at the time. This man, for the people over whom he ruled, was nothing other than the king of the world, so great was his land. And in the third year of his reign, you'll notice in verse 3, he decided to throw a feast for all of the VIPs in his kingdom. Listed out there, officials, servants, the army of Persia and media, the nobles and governors, showing them for 180 days, verse 4 says, the splendor and pomp of his greatness. Kids, how many months make up 180 days? So six months. When was the last time you heard of a world ruler saying it's time to party for six months in a row? Social introverts like me think six hours is exhausting, (laughs) let alone six months. But the point is actually to show us this is how powerful the king was. He could throw a feast for half of a year, and he knows that his empire is not going to be threatened. He can functionally be debauched for six months in a row, and there's no danger to his rule and authority. Uh, The author, as we're going to see by the end, he's piling up all of these details, actually, in a a very profound way to show the ostentatious nature of King Ahasuerus and his empire. But you'll see what we're told, even in verse 6, it's not just the king's land that is worthy of our attention. But in some ways akin to an ancient version of lifestyles and the rich and the famous were to pay attention to the king's luxury. Because if you just scan your eyes through all of the details of verse 6. These vast furnishings and decorations that marked his palace there in Susa. One scholar tries to capture the sense of the original language which is just, again, it's just overflowing with this kind of ostentatious quality. This scholar says you could translate verse 6 trying to capture, if you will, the wow factor. And oh, the white cotton curtains and violet hangings. And oh, the couches of gold and silver and mosaic pavement of porphyry and marble and mother of pearl. Oh, the grandeur, oh, the glory, oh, the splendor. Behold King Ahasuerus. Such is his wealth. And this overwhelming Wealth, not surprisingly, leads to an overwhelming consumption of wine. You see what we're told in verse 7. All of these different vessels of gold and cups, so on and so forth, filled with wine at the bounty of the king. Verse 8 says, The drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion. What that would have meant at that time is because of his power, because of his authority, certainly to the custom of such an ancient kingdom. If you were in the king's presence, you only drank when he drank. When he wanted you to drink, he told you to drink. When you weren't allowed to drink, he told you not to drink. But in the midst of this feast and festival, he essentially says, every man is left to himself. I'll do whatever you want. You can drink whenever you want, not drink whenever you want. For months and months in a row, the men celebrate. You'll notice in verse 9, the women are celebrating too. As we move from the king's wealth to the king's wife. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. So after these six months end, what Ahasuerus has done is he's taken this final week afterwards. These seven days in a row where he's invited All of the common citizens in and around Susa, both large and small, great and tiny, the text says, to participate again in his pomp and splendor and his royalty. You'll notice in verse 10, at the end of this seventh day when the king's heart was merry, he summoned these seven eunuchs and and he says, go get the queen. Go get the queen. Why? Verse 11. To bring her before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty. For she was lovely to look at. The rabbis throughout the ages have speculated whether or not there was more to the crown that he summoned her to wear when she was to appear before the king. But certainly the point was, here for King Ahasuerus, in a drunken, debauched state, he wanted to show his wife off. Here's my trophy wife, citizens of Susa. Candy for the eyes, time to gawk, time to grovel. And against all expectation at that time in such a kingdom, the queen says, no way is that going to happen. Verse 12, but Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. And at this the king became enraged and his anger burned within him. If you ever had the time to read through certainly modern day commentaries on Esther, modern day studies of Esther, you would see with this woman, Queen Vashti, who is in every way a minor character in the tale. She seems to often be elevated to a heroine status, as though she's something of a proto-feminist and she's really truly exposing the king and her nobility. But that's not the point of the passage at all in Vashti's rejection. What she's simply doing in this moment is showing to the watching world with the pen of this author recounting the tale that this king, who supposedly is none other than the power in all the world, this king has just been made a fool by his wife because his word has gone forth and she has displayed the limits of his power. In a very real and public way, he's been knocked down more than a few steps Which is why, when we turn to our third and final section, the king's word, you see that his advisors and wise men are very much worried that he's been knocked down way too many pedestals. Because you glance through verse 13 and following, you see these men, these wise men, who were essentially his law counselors. And he gathers them together and says, Well, guys, what are we going to do about Queen Vashti? Now, she defied my order disobeyed my command, what do we need to do? And this one man in verse 16, Memu Khan, he stands out in the presence of the kings and the officials, and he says, I know exactly what we need to do. Because here's the problem, O king. A feminist uprising will happen in your empire if word of this gets out and you don't deal with it. All the wives everywhere will never listen to anything their husbands say. So here's what you need to do. Verse 19, If it please the king, let a royal order go out from him and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes so that it may not be repealed that Vashti is never again to come before King Ahasuerus and let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. And it seems as though without any possible debate in his own mind, King Ahasuerus says, good plan." Verse 22, he sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in his own script and to every people in its own language, that every man be master in his own household and speak according to the language of his people. Simply put, this is why a new queen is about ready to rise, because Vashti said no to King Ahasuerus. Those of you that have studied English literature before surely have been forced to come across the works of William Shakespeare. And if you know Shakespeare well enough, you know that he, of course, is quite formidable, not only in the study of literatures, but even uh, the notion of the English language as well. And he's well known for this recurring character that scholars often refer to as Shakespeare's fools. These fools are gestures or fool-like figures or gesture-like figures that show up in the story and they mock The vices of the powerful. They ridicule the pompous nature of those in authority. And those on the other side were made to take it. As though these fools were the stand-up comedians of the time. And of course the author of Esther, we don't know exactly who it is. uh, The author of Esther is no fool or jester in that court sense. But what you need to know right from the outset of this book. That the author is going to employ All of these fool-like techniques to expose what is the empire of the world. Ridicule, irony, exaggeration. All of these literary devices to show the pompousness of human power. And that's one of two things I want you to see as we begin to close out this brief meditation on chapter 1 two things that you can write down, two things that you ought to keep in the back of your mind as we continue on in the ensuing weeks in Esther, the first of which is Esther shows us the foolishness of worldly power. The foolishness of worldly power. One scholar commenting on the very beginning of Esther says this, Ahasuerus is God. That is how the book of Esther begins. The book begins with the one who is in charge of all the events and circumstances, the arrangements and threats that affect the Jews. Of course, these Jews are there in exile in Persia, soon to be threatened by an enemy, opposed even to the very end of their existence. And Ahasuerus is presented as the god in the world. He's the swallower of cities. He's the conqueror of empires. We know from history that even that citadel of Susa uh, was this man-made city in which his throne was essentially on this man-made hill that topped 120 feet into the sky, that it would be as clear as day to anyone who was watching. Uh, King Ahasuerus is not merely king. He is the unimpeachable, unconquerable potentate of the world. And then with one swipe of a pin, the author says... His wife said, no, it's not happening. Bumbling buffoons will ensue along the way in this story. Men that were supposed to have all the power that the world could ever have desired. Realizing, or at least telling us to realize that worldly power is always going to fall apart. Because it's not built on the cornerstone of Jesus Christ. Its foundation is faulty from the get-go. So you might look out on the world today and wonder why this world power or this government authority seems so opposed to the church of Jesus Christ. So mighty in its strength, how might its citizens, God's citizens, prevail and continue to reign in faithfulness? Well, understand that what this text is telling us is that the world's prestige and power will fall apart at some point, just as even that original fool in Shakespeare's works, Touchstone. What he said is, a fool thinks he is wise, but the wise man knows he's a fool, and King Ahasuerus is about ready to find that out, and not just him, some of his subjects as well. And so students, as you're growing up, understand that there's a temptation that the devil's always going to throw your way towards significance in this life. Perhaps in your own little world, however small it might be, that you would be the conquering king of that tiny little empire. That you might get all the money that your heart desires. To bring all the security and comfort that you could possibly imagine. And what the Bible is showing us is that will always fall apart without Christ in it. Is it not the word of our Savior Jesus Christ who said, what will it profit a man to gain the whole world? But to lose his soul. So pay attention to Esther showing us the foolishness of worldly power. Number two, pay attention to how Esther shows us the faithfulness of God. The faithfulness of God. His name is not mentioned in the book. Yet he's everywhere in the book. Perhaps in your own life you can go through an ordinary day. I dare say even an ordinary week. And God's name is scarcely mentioned from your tongue. But you know as well as I do, don't you, that He is everywhere working in your life. And the great good news of Jesus Christ is that this side of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, His ascension to rule in heaven, this side of Esther, we get to rejoice in a providence that is not completely mysterious and invisible. Because it's in Jesus Christ that the mysterious has been made manifest, that the invisible has been made visible. And you can tease that out along the way as you compare the two kings within this story. King Ahasuerus, supposedly God of the world. And the king of kings who is none other than God who created the world and rules over it. Perhaps you notice the way in which King Ahasuerus summoned his wife. You notice in verse 5 it was in this garden palace. He said, Come. I want everyone to gawk and grovel at your beauty. I want to shame you before my citizens. And what great news there is in Jesus Christ that the true king of kings also summons his bride. And he also summons and says, I want everyone to look at you. But this is not that they would heap shame upon her. But as the great hymn says, from heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride. With his own blood he bought her, and for her life he died. That he would cherish her, that he would love her, that he would wash her with the water of his word, that he might present her radiant and full of splendor, without spot, wrinkle, blemish, or any such thing, holy and blameless before him. So you have a worldly king summoning his wife The shame in a garden palace, You have the true King of Kings, God's Word says, summoning His people to another garden palace, this one eternal in its splendor, that He might show forth the beauty of the people that He has saved, the people that He is in every way, hidden and mysterious, known and unknown, bringing His purposes to pass, that He might protect them, that He might provide for them, that He might be present with them. Let's pray together. Lord, we ask that you would sustain us in faith in Jesus Christ in the midst of whatever trial, perhaps affliction, uh, you have brought our way. Knowing that by your Spirit you have indwelt our heart, that we might know you, that we might love you, that we might receive from your continuous supply of strength and wisdom. That we might know the summons of our Savior, a summons to his love and a summons to his grace. And we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's pray. Uh,